0: Good morning, noon, or night, whenever and wherever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on September 14th, 2021. Enjoy this conversation with independent journalist and political analyst Nico House. Nico hit the independent media scene in 2014 with the premiere of his program, Mikasa Sukasa, on YouTube, and quickly became a leading progressive African American voice within that space. Though initially identifying with other more established left-leaning outlets such as the Young Turks, his unique perspective and powerful critical thinking skills caused a rift after the 2016 Democratic primary showed powerful evidence of being rigged in favor of Hillary Clinton and against progressive favorite Bernie Sanders. Like many progressives at the time, Nico became aware of the depths of entrenched corruption within the political process— his reporting now reflects the feelings of many left-leaning individuals alienated by the traditional left-right paradigm, and his views have evolved to include a marked distrust of both corporate and government stakeholders. While still identifying as left-leaning, his views are insightful and well worth paying attention to by progressives and populists alike. Mikasa Sukasa now represents a powerful unifying voice from outside traditional political boundaries from an African-American perspective. I initially invited Nico onto the show to have that uncomfortable conversation about race. Clearly, the Trump-era mainstream media narrative inundated American culture with the notion that white supremacy and white nationalism were steadfast characteristics of many Trump supporters, and white America was introduced to concepts such as white privilege, critical race theory, and anti-racism. Lines were drawn as many felt it was virtuous to pursue these concepts with a fervor, while others felt attacked and censored for supporting alternative perspectives concerning racial equality. The killing of George Floyd and subsequent Black Lives Matter uprising resulted in a dramatic bifurcation of American society not seen since the 1960s. Though there was no shortage of political commentary on the issue at the time, very little included personal, mature conversation between representatives of different racial groups. Ironically, most simply pitted white against white in an effort to discern the best way to treat people of color going forward. Stay tuned for this conversation between a white man and a black man as we discuss our personal experiences concerning white privilege and systemic racism, delve into the root causes of the issue, and seek realistic and mutually beneficial solutions. Find out more about the work of Nico House on YouTube on the Nico House and the MCSC Network channel on Rockfin at www.rockfin.com backslash Nico or connect on Twitter at NicoCSFB. As always, find out more about The Shift, sign up for the newsletter, or subscribe to feature-length versions of the program at www.theshiftnow.com. If you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this episode throughout your social media network. We rely on listeners like you to distribute this material. I want to thank Nico House for agreeing to participate in this intimate conversation about race, and thank you for helping to make The Shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is the 94th episode of The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKinty. I'm happy to be joined today by Nico House uh, of the MCSC Network. He's got a show coming up on RT, actually, uh, in about a month from now. So uh, happy to have him on the show, help him, uh, help him tell people a little bit about that. I had Nico on the show. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time. When I first uh, when I first uh, emailed him about this, I told him I wanted to have that uncomfortable conversation about race because when the whole thing started happening uh, under Trump a few years back, everybody started talking about white privilege. Uh, I just, it, it became really apparent that in order to have an actual conversation, I, I needed to actually speak with an African American person and we needed to have this conversation about what racism is, how it affects people uh, you know, what is my situation as a white person in terms of this concept of white privilege? I just wanted to really hash this out. And, uh, Nico agreed to come on the show and have this conversation with me. So thank you so much, Nico. I, I hope this is a a good conversation. Actually. I hope it's really interesting. I'm sure. I'm sure it will be.
1: I'm sure. And you know, what's funny about that? First of all, thank you. Uh, because usually when white people, especially guys want to have a conversation about white privilege, it's just like between two white guys talking about white privilege. Right. <laughs> like, I'm like, does any, so nobody sees the problem with this. Like, oh, okay, I guess, whatever. <laughs> right. I'll just sit back and learn from you guys then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because a lot of the time, there's two white guys that I actually know personally, we just yeah. uh, in the independent media world, it's like, sure. yeah, we're going to have this conversation. Because, like, sometimes, um, you know, you'll see the idea of privilege or race weaponized. Right. Where somebody trying to take a moral high ground mm-hmm. and then I'm like, well, that's that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. And at other times you see people like, well, t- I have no idea what you're talking about. That's not how it is to be black at all. And I'm like, well, what the fuck would you know, bro? Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. I'm it, not saying like everybody has a clear understanding of any of these ideas. And I get that. But like at, the same, at least try to bring somebody on who can actually speak from their own perspective. Yeah, that's a problem in. You know, because, you know, some conservatives do that. They'll, You know, everybody tokenizes at this point. Some conservatives are guilty of it. A lot of liberals at this point are even more guilty of it. But then when it comes to have, it comes time to have that real conversation, uh, those who have a genuine understanding get left out of the conversation. So everybody just is the worst, more for the worst after that, instead of like having, you know, the conversation that we're having here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, another thing just to kind of just kind of get going with it. Uh, well, actually, I guess, um, do you want to let the audience know here at the beginning a little bit about your history and your show and what's going on? We'll, we'll get that out oh, of the yeah. way, and then we'll we'll dive into it. So uh, my history
1: is uh, 2016, I started the largest Bernie organization in the country uh, while well, I was at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I was also the state director and the president of North Carolina Colleges for Bernie, too. And then uh, by way of that, I actually discovered some fraud, uh, election fraud in we got really popular and we started the DNC fraud lawsuit, uh, which got all the way to the Supreme Court. When, and coincidentally enough, was uh, kicked out by Clarence Thomas right after Joe Biden and got nominated. Um, yeah. So if you don't know that story, go ahead and look that up. But yeah. uh, basically how everybody everybody is aware at this point of whenever the the attorney argued on behalf of the DNC and said that they could choose their candidate in a smoke filled room, you know, behind closed doors doors that was that was that lawsuit um and so uh you know jared and liz were the attorneys on that jared and, right. jared beck and elizabeth lee were the attorneys on that i, there's, I
0: there's, have interviewed jared in the past so that that yeah, episode's available
1: mm-hmm. yeah they're amazing brilliant he's absolutely brilliant um and then at some point in between all that i ended up getting my own radio show on iHeartRadio, and then uh started my own youtube channel and you know then became a Tulsi surrogate and a lot of stuff, you know, I did a lot of activism and organizing between that. And now I have my own media network, independent media network, MCSC network, but I also have, uh, I will have my own show on RT, but I do a lot of interviews on RT and my segments are oftentimes go on RT. Like they, I have interviews for them and um, are conduct interviews for them. And I do segments for them now. And then we're, but we're working on a TV show at the moment too. Uh, It's going to be like a panel discussion of uh, like, Different opinions, really having uh, harder conversations than than what we have. Like I wanna, I'm gonna try to even push the envelope uh for, for what's considered, you know, normal even for RT, right? Like we have a conversation, for example, about vaccines because of the Sputnik vaccine, our Russia itself is actually a very pro-vaccine country. I'm guessing your vaccine doesn't have a shitload of side effects and it's actually made a technology that's been around for a while. <laughs> you you don't have to right. worry about that. But that was something that, like, obviously as an American, uh, with my own unique experiences with the vaccines, it wasn't as cut and dry. And we had like a little pushback amongst the, some of the producers and what what I wanted to do for um, to cover Pfizer and Moderna, making over like 50 billion this year estimated with the vac- for the vaccine as they're getting the booster shot, as they're condemning ivermectin, as they're about to raise the prices of those two particular vaccines in EU as AstraZeneca falls out of favor in the EU, uh, mind you, AstraZeneca is also the one that's like, yeah, we're not going to make it for profit. So like, as all this stuff is going on, we're having this issue, and basically, I like kind of like, uh, I don't say I put my foot down, but I was like, yo, like, I'm doing my job. I'm unless, now, if y'all can watch the video, decide if the facts are accurate, and then go on from there. But like, just because it makes somebody uncomfortable doesn't mean doesn't doesn't mean it shouldn't be said. Yeah. So that we end up doing that one. And it ends up going viral on Twitter and everybody is overwhelmingly supportive of it. And that's like, that was always my goal is there's a way you can have these conversations that people who may fall into one camp or the other can all watch and be like, okay, there's something not right here, regardless of where you fall. And that's definitely what I want to do with the platform on RT, similar to what I do on my show, but you know, where more millions of people can hear it.
0: Yeah. Well, congratulations on the move. And I'll be looking forward to checking that out for sure. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. It seems like RT, certainly when it comes to cable news, is the only place where you really are allowed to have conversations that are outside of the box. So, one hundred percent. Yeah, (laughs) one hundred percent. Yeah,
1: they literally. I I told them whenever they uh, first reached out to me, I'm like, y'all do know who I am, right? Like, yeah, we've been watching you for the last year and a half. I'm like, you do know the stuff I talk about, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's why we watched you. (laughs) So yeah, that was exciting. Like, yeah, we hope you do it
0: more. i was like, okay, whatever, let's (laughs) go. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, um, I am happy to have you on this show uh, right before your big break. So, uh, you know, we can talk about things. And um, again, I just I wanted to have you on to kind of specifically have this conversation about race. And I, as I was uh, interview or as I was doing the research, watching your stuff, getting prepared for this, uh, there's certainly a lot of other topics that we could talk to talk about. So let's see what we get to today. Um, but uh, we'll just get get started with this kind of major central Theme since it's been such a big issue, it's out of the news right now, but it'll probably, you know, make it make its way back into the news cycle and be a huge issue again uh, whenever the the media gods decide, I guess, uh, which is maybe something we could talk about, too. Like, well, um, I guess I wanted to start, you know, in the in the email that I sent you. I just kind of described my own experience, which was uh, like, you know, I had a grandmother who was born in nineteen hundred. She was born in Georgia. And the lady was definitely a racist, you know, I mean, the whole family knows it. We all knew it. Um, but my parents seemed like, you know, they were probably in their They were a little bit older. They were in their 40s, I think, uh, late 30s during the 1960s. And I think they were really heavily influenced by Martin Luther King. I, and from my experience, you know, a lot of white people were. And it, it really tempered a lot of that sort of traditional racism that had happened. And there were a lot of changes that that got made at that time. And so from my perspective, I mean, it just doesn't seem like I was necessarily raised that way. And we've always tried not to be racist. You know, we've always known that it was an issue and a thing. But Mm -hmm. but at at the same time, it's not like I grew up in an African American community, or I had a lot of black friends, or, you know, I really don't even know how to have this conversation necessarily. And right now, I think I also told you, I mean, I live here in Northern California. I think this community is 99% white. There there may not be a whiter community in the country. So yeah, my, unless my, you're in the
1: Bay Area specifically, like well, not like San Francisco Bay Area. I'm talking right. about the actual Bay Area. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. My, my black friend moved to Oakland a few years ago. So you know.
1: yeah, that's the, that. My, my, my family out there lives in, um, san pablo oakland richmond like that area
0: yeah yeah so which is understandable you know i mean he he felt lonely out here i think he certainly kind of stuck out right and and uh and you know he'll tell me to my face like yeah i needed to you know i needed to be around more more of my people yeah right (laughs) 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 i don't even know is that racist can i say it like that i don't (laughs) know i mean no
1: people like like being around others they can relate to that they can build with like that that like it's like camaraderie and community right it's not necessarily that it's not like because they're a particular race that he wants to be around them it's just that there's a relatability factor and there's a experiential connectivity that can't be replicated just by like these conversations of oh like i I feel for you i mean i i hear about what you go through that's super sad it's like yeah i mean but like you can't really you, you haven't gone through it though so there's some conversations that we have like as humans where the starting off point of that particular conversation is based on a bunch of factors like experiences, personal background, understandings that you might have, uh, like commonalities that you might have. Where if somebody came into that conversation halfway through, you're like, they're like, what the fuck? How, how do we get here? Yeah. And but the people who have the same experiences or similar experiences, they start off their conversation there because there's all there's that understanding of everything else without there having to be an explanation. And, and that's what everybody does. That's kind of how we end up in, in tribes. Is yeah. that there's an understood, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's a horrible thing. But there, it's like whenever I joke around a lot, whenever I see uh, a, a rich white liberal somewhere out here in, in South Miami with the three signs like Biden, Harris, uh, get vaxxed, and uh, BLM. Yeah. All in the same sign. Like, do, I don't actually believe they think Black Lives Matter, first of all. I don't believe they know anything about healthcare. I don't think they've done any research in it. They're just quoting something that's they just have a nice little slogan out there. Do I actually think they know anything about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris like their actual backgrounds? No. But with those three signs, that is a a projection of status, right? They're mm-hmm. letting you know everything about them without them ha- without you actually having to have a conversation with them. And other liberals know that. Just like, to some degree, it's like that if you have a MAGA sign outside of your yard or something like that, maybe a MAGA in the Ron DeSantis. You, I, I know every, the things I can talk to them about. I know the things that I probably have in common with them. I know things I may not have in common with them. Um, You know, that. so it's like that when you're talking about wanting to be around people who have similar experiences. There's mm-hmm. some conversations you can have that you don't have to go through explaining everything you've been through so that you can finally start to have the conversation that you want to have.
0: Right. Well, why don't you tell us about uh, some of your personal experiences with racism and, and how it affects you know people of color around you and your community? Like, what what is going on right now that you see that that is affecting you on a daily basis, or is it just occasionally that you run into you know some asshole that kind of gives you the look or says something? You know, how how does it affect you today in in America right now? Uh, how has it affected you in your life growing up? Man, so. I was so I'm I'm mixed
1: I'm I'm Barbadian and French actually mm-hmm. but I'm the darkest in my family right which is weird I don't I, like everybody else light skin I just came out like this whatever it's cool but <laughs> <laughs> so, but I was very fortunate enough that when I was in high school I grew up in the because I was in the military town I grew up in a community actually that was primarily mixed so everybody was mixed and then like but there was no one who was overtly racist mm-hmm. like at all. Beat overtly now, what I later ended up finding out unfortunately was that there were still a lot of uh there was still a lot of racism that I had suffered from that I was just completely oblivious to, okay, like for example, I was in debate uh i used to i was a, it, I was one of the best debaters in the country at one point in high school, and not for nothing, but there was not a lot of black debaters, and the ones who were there just weren't good. We, there's a lot of reasons for that you don't have to get into that, but it's just unfortunately uh that's just the way it was which is what made me kind of like an anomaly uh, but also a a conundrum for people who had uh, whatever idea that they had for their students or their kids when it came to using that debate platform to elevate their kids into a higher social status later on. Uh Because, like, winning a tournament or several of them, winning a national tournament, even placing one of those things, will will damn near guarantee you a full ride to a lot of places when you're competing against other students who are usually – The students that are competing for like the Rhodes Scholarship uh, and and, and, um, there's another one, too. But basically, there's a lot of scholarships out there where it's like the best scholarship in the country. You're competing with people all over the country, sometimes all over the world. Um, A lot of them are in that debate league. So Mm -hmm. it was a big deal. I didn't realize at the time that me winning so much was pissing coaches off, debate coaches off. And I was at a tournament where I had... This is like basically everything kind of like came together for me at this point, like my senior year. Um, So I had the whole thing figured out and I had a round where I was and I was in student Congress and student Congress is the hardest debate event in forensics and debate because it's like 26 other people in the room that you're competing against at the exact same time. And you have to you have a bunch of legislation that you have to decide whether or not you're going to write speeches on it. You have to get educated on all of it. Um, You have to give speeches. It's 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 a pretty hard debate, a pretty hard debate event. And I was getting first. I had perfect scores on all my speeches. Uh, As far as like the way I conducted myself in chamber, I had first place across the board in the first half of the tournament. And there was a plot from the coaches and their students to closet me out of that round. Um, And my debate coach. Was trying to figure out what was going on while I was dealing with it in chamber uh, and effectively. The tab room came in and said, I had cussed somebody out in the middle of their speech, which was weird. Like while they were right. speaking, I was like cussing at them, which wasn't true. Uh, and then they did a vote to whether or not to closet me. Of course, the chamber was like, no, he didn't do that. So the tab room overruled the vote and closeted me anyway. And uh, getting closeted is such a big deal that it leads to a suspension in school. It's like. It's like the equivalent of getting a red card as a high school soccer player. You can get like a two-day suspension in your school for getting a red card as a soccer player in school. So, that, And if you get suspended from school, you're kicked off of the debate team permanently. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened, effectively. Mm-hmm. Now, I had no idea what really happened. I knew it was clearly a competition thing. But basically, when I was, when I was about 23 or 24 years old, I had reconnected with my old debate coach. And I had been really upset with him, actually, up until this point, because I thought that he just let the whole thing happen because he didn't want to tell me what had really happened because he didn't want me to be want me to be in my head about it for the like rest of my young adult life. Where basically the other coaches told him that they weren't going to let some little black boy be the best debater in the country. Yeah. Yeah. And. I found out that the assistant coaches on my team were racist. And that is why they didn't like me because we started our whole debate program because we were always good at the speaking side. Like so humorous interpretation, like duos and all that good stuff. But like our debate program was trash and they launched the debate, basically like the, the prominence of the debate program came because I was the one who got thrown into the fire, learned the process and taught everybody else. And then we became one of the best debate programs in the country. And this is something that the assistant coaches had been trying to attempt to do for for years before I even got there.
0: Sure. So
1: they took exception with that. Right. And And so that was something that I didn't even realize was happening to me at the time, because I was kind of like. I'm like, no, because everything is about merit, right? Why would someone dislike you just because you're doing well in an event? I don't dislike them because they're doing well. I figure that just means I should compete harder because that's what everything is. It's a meritocracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it turned out that that wasn't the case at all. Fast forward, I even experienced that in college debate. And had when people figured out how good of a debater I was then, because these are the people in college, like the VP of McKinsey ended up like I, I, I debated against him. And he ended up becoming the VP of McKinsey, like three years later. Like that, these, those type of people, uh, Ted Cruz was an APTA. So same thing. We're not going to let some little black kid or older black kid be the best debater. Right. And there was a conspiracy to kick me out of the debate league, uh, before we started doing like the, like the placing for like worlds, the world competition and all that good stuff. And so, in that, once again, I, I ended up figuring that out too. And so, I mean, that's just like school stuff. I got jumped by six cops in a Burger King. Not even what was it 2017, 2018. Um, I got jumped by six cops. They were called on somebody else. I was the only black person. The, oh, excuse me, no, it was me and my friend. Right. I was the but I was the only black person at the time that they could see in the establishment. So they, I'm like on my phone waiting for my food. They ran six of them in our truck trying to beat the shit out of me and drag me to the ground. And the girls are screaming like, whoa, he didn't do anything. They're ignoring them. And these girls are like hanging on these cops' neck, trying to pull them off me. The person that they did acknowledge, though, is my friend who asked them, why do they keep pulling out their guns? Now, mind you, my friend is the only other black person in the room. Right. So they are, they couldn't take me down. Like, And I've been in the military, so like I know combatives and all that good stuff. So, And I'm, I'm like a bigger guy. I'm like 6'1", 210, 215 pounds. So they couldn't really bring me down because it's Miami and all the cops are like five foot, five foot six. <laughs> and they instead arrest my friend. So, and he's not from here. I'm like, shit, I can't let him go to jail by himself. He's not gonna know what the hell to do. So I like go to the ground or I'm about to like let them just take me to the ground. So when I just, I'm like, all right, all right. I stopped struggling. They acted like they, they were done trying to fight me when I like like stopped tensing up. They grabbed me and slammed me on my shoulder, dislocated my shoulder, tore my rotator cuff, and they weren't going to take me to the hospital. Instead, they were going to take me to jail and let me suffer. And the only reason they didn't is because I'm like, okay, so I don't know how you all think this is going to go, but you might want to Google my fucking name before you make this decision. So the supervisor Googles me, and then he's like, call the ambulance. And that's the only reason they took me. So then I get to the hospital. Uh, and they don't, they don't tell me what I'm being charged for. I get, t- I have to, I, I, saw, I tore my rotator's cuff. They had to like do like this, this procedure where they put it back in. I stay in the hospital for two days. And then on the last day, like three in the morning, some cop comes in, a black cop and like cuffs me to the bed. Now I'm like, Oh, what is this for? And he's like, Oh, it's cause you're uh, like under arrest. I'm like, well, haven't I been under arrest this entire time? I just went the fuck home. He's like, oh, no, you weren't under arrest this entire time. They didn't put an arrest affidavit in until like two hours ago. I said, then why were there cops sitting outside of my bed? Like my hospital room? He said, "Um, well, they shouldn't have been sitting outside of your bed. We just got this arrest affidavit in. And I'm like, well, what does it say I did? So you were trespassing in a Burger King. Okay. Hmm. And that I was resisting arrest. Yeah. And he, and I'm explaining to him what happened and like like that because he, he was kind of confused too. He's like, because there were cops outside of the room. He's like, so why wasn't I handcuffed to the bed and why is he just now getting an arrest affidavit? Because that, that's that. So that's out of procedure. And he was like, uh, well, you need to press charges on these cops because that's kidnapping. What they're doing actually is kidnapping, and they falsify an arrest affidavit to. To, to cover their, their ass for beating the shit out of me right. and then you look at the fucking police report it like describes me as like some six 250 pound giant and then my friend after I get out of jail tells me that they're bragging about taking me down like he could hear them bragging when he was in the patrol car about taking me down like I was a trophy I go to sue them no one wants to sue the Miami PD because they hire all of the fucking law firms in the state, put them on retainer so there's a conflict of interest for them to sue them.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. So that's just a few stories.
0: Yeah, man. I mean, I'm sorry to hear that, you know? I, it's uh, it's interesting that the race thing comes up as if you're successful in in the white community. I mean, the story about the debate it seems like that's when those feelings kind of start to come out. Like it's not, it's mm-hmm. not going to be overt in your face. Uh, but then it seems like if, if other white people start to feel a little bit threatened, if you're being a little bit too successful in that space, that's when you're feeling it. And yeah. then I, and then I think the police story that's from my understanding is pretty common in the African-American community. Right. I mean, this kind yeah. this police issue is huge.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And, and don't get me wrong people. Like I fully acknowledge, like in a place like West Virginia, where there's only poor people, like of course, police are going to go after the poor people. It's just unfortunately true that in most metropolitan areas, or even in some rural areas, the poorest people are still the black people because of redlining and things like that. Right. So, and and, and there's a you know, and there's a reason for that. And I would say this this uh, and and I would like to get your opinion on this. So when it comes to this su- the perceived ex- success of black people, or in s- the way some White people, and unfortunately, the truth is, in my experience, is actually white liberals that this has been prom- more prominent with. Right. There is an idea. There is this idea that the country is in fact a meritocracy. That if you do, well, maybe not as much anymore because the last couple of years, I feel like, has killed that <laughs> illusion. But yeah. But for the most part, people have believed that this is a meritocracy. People have believed that if you do, especially if you're raised in a white community, if you do the right thing, you work harder, you work smarter. You 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 come to work, you you put your hard head on, you just get the job done, then you will be rewarded. And so all of your success comes from maybe at the most, the influence of your family, but mostly you and what you have done to deserve it. No one wants to really believe that they had an that they had an advantage over somebody else, for whatever reason that may be. Mm-hmm. But like at the end of the day. It's, it's, just the, it's just the truth, right? Like Just like I was talking about redlining. People associate, like a lot of leftists associate FDR like this fucking savior. FDR is like the worst thing to happen in the black community in the last hundred years. He's the one who introduced redlining. Yeah. He shut down, the black banks were the only banks that survived the Great Depression. A lot of people don't know that. Huh. And he shut them down anyway so that they couldn't surpass JP Morgan. So they couldn't surpass uh, Wells Fargo and, and Bank of America and all these major banks. So that they couldn't compete with the Fed in the national budget that was being established at that time. It had just gotten established, and uh, the bank that would would have would have been on Wall Street that was burned to the ground and there's no record of anymore, would have actually been able to compete with the Fed. He was not gonna allow that to happen. So they redline us and then they disallow us from getting mortgages, they stop us from getting business loans, they, you know, you, you know how the story goes. Like 93% of all education is paid for. Through property taxes. Number one, what the number one reason people get divorced is because of finances. So now, finances is becoming more and more of a issue within the black community, which obviously makes them uh, it ripe for crime. And so, and, and of course, this was not treatment that was given to the white communities. Right. Right. They have poor white communities have different issues, but it wasn't because they were white that they were being targeted. That's and, and that's so that's a t- totally separate issue. These communities were specifically being targeted because they were black. So there was somebody somewhere, right, who where two people went for a business loan in the same area. The black person was immediately denied because of the neighborhood that they lived in, whereas this white person got this business loan, got a low interest rate and became successful. Right. How is that? A free market. That person had an advantage. They did work hard. No one's saying they didn't deserve the opportunity, but in a meritocracy, both people would have the same opportunity to achieve the same level of success, all things being equal. But the problem is all things weren't equal. And some people have to accept now, not only was their success potentially uh, aided by the lack of opportunity someone else got, but also... That means you failed, even though you may have gotten more opportunity than somebody else got and in spite of all the uh, all the uh, circumstances that this black person might have went through. If you see them succeed, that was in spite of that opportunity that that they didn't have. And so now you have to that person may have to deal with, well, shit. I have to now look, I can't, they scapegoat the black person or scapegoat the system and say, oh, it's because they got affirmative action and got all this shit. I promise you affirmative action doesn't help as much as you would think it is. And it actually mostly helps white women, believe it or not. They're the number one beneficiaries of affirmative action, okay. but they don't so, so a lot of people will have to wrestle with that within themselves. And, uh, that's hard to do, man. It's hard to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, I did an interview, uh, it's been probably a year or two now, Uh, And it was with another white guy about racism. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't going to be quite as the the, the quality as uh, this conversation, but he wrote a book about the redlining thing. And I, uh, and I, and I, so I learned a lot about it and I have been amazed at how few people discuss that because that is something that I have experienced as a white guy where I see, you know, in my own family or in other families where, you know, uh, white people are struggling just like everybody else. Right. And we got, you know, I mean, I don't like, like, like for a person like me, you know, I didn't want to get that corporate job. And I, so I didn't get maybe some of those, some of that white privilege. If I, you know, if I had joined the corporate world, like I kind of learned early on that I didn't want to really have much to do with that. (laughs) Right. And I've been just, you know, doing my own thing, making it on my own. Um, and so I guess when that concept of white privilege kind of started coming up at first, I was like, you know, I mean, I, I struggle, too, just like everybody else. I don't know why we have to turn it into this race thing necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I started thinking about it more and more, the redlining thing really made a lot of sense to me. Because, again, just to, to finish okay. that story, I do have friends that, you know, they're struggling just like, again, like everybody else. Uh, And they're in their forties or fifties or whatever. And then their parents pass away and they sell the parents house for a million dollars and they get, you know, they get that generational wealth, and I was actually, you know, looking to do research for this show. I heard you talking about FDR and the Federal Housing Authority. I remember that interview that I did, and I was really happy that that you've picked up on that because nobody talks about this. Wait, it's mm-hmm. like when people talk about reparations, they're talking about slavery and going all the way back to the, through this past history, and and then I think white people have a tendency to be like, well, I didn't own a slave, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, uh, yeah. And it seems and like you can make an so argument for that.
1: And you can make an argument for that, but that, in my opinion, slavery doesn't have, it has little to nothing to do, at least in a, you know, more di- like in a direct way. Like it has little to nothing to do with white privilege of today, necessarily. Yeah. Like, yeah, there is like a lead up to it. You can make like where you can make a loose connection, but like the the redlining thing is, is direct, right? Because totally. business loans are more of a factor, like mortgages, like there are people who are. Like a year or a generation removed, a parent or a grandparent removed from not being able to get a second mortgage or a mortgage on their home, which is the number one way that people finance small businesses that aren't going to be able to sell their house or inherit a home so they don't have to pay anything but property taxes so they can buy that second car. They don't have to deal with the urban uh, credit score that black people have to deal with. This is like today that this is happening. Right. So I, I agree. Like that's why people like some white people will tune out completely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. This, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say this redlining thing makes so much more sense when you realize it because then it puts the plight of the African American community and, and then even the idea of white privilege, I think, in a little bit of a more more modern time scale. And it's really understandable because like I said, like I have friends that clearly cashed in. I had, you know, uh a relative that bought a house in Stanford, you know, in, in Palo Alto and in uh 1955 for you know fifteen thousand dollars or something, and it's worth a million and a half today. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's just like and and what? that's those are the properties that African Americans were not allowed to get in the 50s. They were redlined out of them. Uh yep. and, then, and then our homes
1: get, and then because we couldn't get small business loans or and mortgage loans and things like that when everyone else was, you know, benefiting from economic up, upturns, guess what then happens? corporations can then come in and gentrify the areas, right? Because our property is worth less for no other reason than the government interfering. And then the gentrification happens. And then the areas that no one wanted to live in all of a sudden become the hotspots after black people and sometimes Latinos and like they build up that metropolitan area for people to like it. And then it's always in a very convenient area because they, you know, they didn't have, because couldn't afford vehicles. So they were living in areas that were convenient. And nobody wanted to be there and so then they get built up by that community and then they get pushed that community then gets pushed out because of something that happened literally 100 years ago and and i would say this too as well so when we're when there's a conversation about white privilege uh a lot of the times it ends up being centered around money at least um from the perspective of white people whenever they're trying to uh, deny the idea of, of a privilege or at least their personal privilege. But what is oftentimes not understood is that is to, to, to immediately think that people are talking about money when we're speaking about white privilege is literally the privilege. Right. Because I, for the most part, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty well-spoken guy. I graduated from one of the best schools in the country. I'm a military vet. I've worked for presidential candidates. I've been on television. And yet, none of that mattered whenever the cops walked in and beat the shit out of me and kidnapped me in that Bird King. Yeah. yeah. I I get crippling anxiety whenever a cop is behind me. Yeah, uh, it's bad. I could be doing absolutely nothing wrong. Doesn't matter. Right. You know, like I have to worry whenever I'm interacting with somebody on a professional level, if it's the first time that I've met them. I have to worry about what kind of black they perceive me as. And is that going to be a factor in how we engage from here on? Uh, Or are they going to ignore that? Or are they going to just take me as I am uh, and as a person? Those are things that we have to think about when applying for jobs, when interacting with cops. er, interacting with the average person in a relationship one of the relationships that i had in high school i had to end not because me my girlfriend didn't work out it's because her dad was racist as shit and threatened to put her up for adoption if she did not break up with
0: me wow yeah
1: and we were both mixed kids but i was black you know what i'm saying like yeah we're mixed my brother looks mixed my sisters look mixed but i'm black you know what i'm saying and so the, the race when we're talking about it a lot of people always say everything is racist. And like, 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 I don't like when people do that because some people do overuse the shit out of it. However, race isn't this arbitrary thing like, oh, well, uh, I'm half white. Like, yeah, am I half white? Technically speaking, yes. But race is what happens if I walk into my girlfriend's or potential girlfriend's parents' home. Let's just say they're from Alabama or Georgia. What does her dad say when I walk into the room? That's the race I am.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I
1: mean, (laughs) it's it's circumstances. It's the way people react to you viscerally that that is outside of your control.
0: Right. Just because of the color of your skin
1: Mm -hmm. and the way that they've been conditioned to react, even in places like what you said. You said you have barely even seen a black person. One of my brother's now best friends. He's from Alabama of the harrison family which was like one of the third like the third richest family in the entire confederacy this man had never seen a black person ever in his life my brother wow. was the first one and because he joined the navy and he would say some shit obviously that wasn't cool and it's when my brother remembered that he had never seen a black person instead of scolding him he was like hey real quick bro come me talk no, nah, right. can't say that. He can't say that. <laughs> he's like, well, why not? I was just joking. He's like, yeah, but this is what this actually means, and this is why people. Are... And then the dude was like, what? For real? Well, shit. I ain't to tell to my family about this. This is fucked up. You know? Yeah. And because my brother was patient enough to understand, like he's subject to the same propaganda that we're subject to, right? And that you're subject. If you're if you're a Democrat, you're subject to the same propaganda. Republicans are subject to. That's the only reason that y'all hate each other so much. Cause then you would realize that we actually have more in common than we have differences, especially poor people in the working class. Like right now we're finding right. out all the working class getting fucked right now. It don't <laughs> matter who you voted for in 2016 or 2020. So that dude ended up basically disowning his family. Cause when they came to visit him, we graduated basic training. He was sitting with my brother and they said, if you ever bring that N word around our family again, like, we're not going to, like, we're just going to disown you. Huh. And he was like, you know what? That's fine. You'll never see us again. And you'll never see your grandchildren again. That's fine. Bye. So he was willing. Once he, somebody sat down and was understanding and explaining to him, you know, this is why this is wrong. This is why, this is what we are actually like. He got to have a one-on-one conversation, uh, got some experiential learning, and it literally made him conscious enough. To dis- to realize how fucked up his family was, and like like and to be clear about that, that's got to be one of the like because it's not like you're just asking somebody to stop being racist. What you're asking someone to do, and people don't think about the human think about on a human level, stop talking to your grandmother. Your grandmother was actually a piece of shit. Your grandparents are actually a piece of shit. Your father is full of shit. Your best friend, your mentor, everybody in your neighborhood, everything that you have ever known to be true up until this point is bullshit. And re- so remove yourself from all of that. That is extremely difficult to ask somebody to do to the point where people will pretend to be racist just so they don't have to do it. Right. Cause nobody would want to do it.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I think I have a similar, like the military actually seems to be kind of a melting pot for people. Cause once, and once they get together and they actually start talking to each other, like you say, I think we got more in common than we do these differences. And it's just because you haven't been exposed and you just have these predispositions. And the only way to get through it is to actually get to know each other and have conversations. Mm. Um, because I have a, a kind of a, a similar story. Like I said, my grandmother was racist and I had cousins that um, were in Vietnam. Right. Mm. And in Vietnam, like they're, you know, they're fighting side by side with African-Americans. They don't they don't give a shit about the color of somebody's <laughs> skin. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and yeah, they soon at us. They don't care what we'll race we are when they yeah. should <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They learned how to respect one another. And uh, I guess they had a I think it was a colonel. This this was before my time, but I hear the story, you know, and he um, was a colonel in the army and they invited him over to the family dinner right because they respected this guy African American guy and my grandmother had such a hard time having him around but they were literally I mean they did it to show her like hey you know this behavior can't really be tolerated anymore (laughs) and so it was one of the things one of the stories that we have in my family about like
1: Mm -hmm. getting over it it,
0: you know learning a little bit more about uh, you know dealing with people having respect for people from different cultural backgrounds and different skin tones and whatnot, and and uh, kind of healing from that, which is something that we, I think, you know, we're all still doing. I mean, I'm open-minded to it. Like, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have the conversation with you to be like, and this actually, like, we can lead this one in because you told the story about the police, too. And, and from my point of view, just, you know, as a white person who's kind of looking in on the situation, it seems like, you know, you have the redlining issue. And then I think the other serious issue for the African-American community is the drug war the drug. I mean, right. This is all tied in together. Yeah. I mean, we have Nixon on tape saying, you know, like, well, let's make heroin illegal flood the African-American community with heroin. And then we have an excuse to go in and arrest all these black Panthers. Right. I mean, this was their plan in the late 60s.
1: You know, there was a, a former police chief. He was in LA and they got him on camera admitting that the government was actively flooding the community with guns and heroin. And like, that's one of the reasons he quit the force.
0: Right. Well, and, you know, it's funny because, again, you know, just since this whole white privilege conversation has happened and then I'm thinking to myself, like, I mean, for one thing, I'm not exposed to, uh, you know, a a lot of the black community living here. And um, uh, but I'm trying to kind of look back at myself and ask myself, do I have some, you know, some subconscious racism that I don't understand about myself? We Uh, all have it. Well, even black people. Yeah. That, and that's a good point too, actually. That's, that's a cool condition to
1: like right? Hollywood conditioned us too. Right.
0: Well, <laughs> and it, it, it's also kind of like, I think what you were talking about earlier, we all have our own communities too. I mean, if you're raised in the African American community, you're African American, it's totally normal to like, feel comfortable in that environment and less comfortable when you go into a, you know, a situation where there's going to be 99% white people. Right. And then the opposite is going to be the case. Like it's, it's also sort of normal to like, be a little bit frightened or a little bit confused. I'm like that so
1: I'm gonna give you an example so cool. growing up because I grew up mixed um and most of the people I knew actually were mixed like my, all my best friends are have something and have something the first few times as an adult I didn't really care when I was a kid because you just don't think about stuff like that you're like oh I'm, I'm not it's not weird to be in a room with a bunch of one group of people yeah it was when I got older I was more cognizant of like what that actually means as far as experience is concerned, I would be in a room like, yeah, if it's all white people, yeah, slightly uncomfortable. Right. I would be in a room with even all black people and be uncomfortable because I knew that they knew I wasn't necessarily the same kind of black they were.
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: Right? And I'm also, I'm Bayesian, so like West Indians, we have our own thing that we have to deal with as diaspora. And so, mm. th- and that's a thing within the black community. Like the, the ones who have been here, or that they they call themselves American descendants of slaves, like, for generations. They're the ones with the family reunions, okay? Those ones, they don't look at us the same way as they look at each other. Huh. And that's a thing that nobody, unless you're in the Black community, would know about, but that's because there is a preconceived notion of what we see them as, and vice versa. And then there's the actual Africans who hate all, well, they don't hate all of us, but they basically look down on us because they see us as... The you know we're like uh like just we're the trash like we're they're they're corrupted they, the white people have gotten them they're westernized they don't believe in the old culture etc cetera, etc cetera. so they even look at us differently and when they come here they would actually rather be around like uh, either Arabs and or desis and sometimes white people than they would feel comfortable being around all black people who are born and raised here. So this is a every, because we all have preconceived notions about what the other is. Yeah. And then people do it, I'm sure that part of it is like, a, like almost a, a defense mechanism so that you can quickly weigh and assess situations, like just, as, a, like just as, a, as human nature. But at the same time, there is an understanding that that is how human nature is and the powers that be in order to divide. They use that to their advantage, which is why you see people casted exclusively in certain roles. And then that's all they ever are allowed to play. And how black people are portrayed. And how Asian women are always portrayed as uh, you know, sub uh what's the word I'm looking for? Um sub subservient, right? Mm-hmm. And and then all the Asian guys are only casted. The only time they're in a leading role is if they're in a karate movie. And every white guy is a sociopathic CEO somewhere. And then like black guys can only be sidekicks if they are in a movie. And then like it's there, even my friend was joking the other day out like we're big Marvel fans. Yeah. And I was joking saying that because they're gonna make they were gonna make the new uh, or they're thinking about making Reed Richards black in the new in the new Fantastic Four because in the comics King the Conqueror who is his descendant is actually black so they're trying to be ac- accurate and he was saying that Susan I was saying that Susan Storm it would be cool if Susan Storm and Johnny were Latino and he was like oh were so you're gonna make another Latino fire character I guess and I was like. <laughs> I was, like, Is that a I was like, oh, my God. Is that a thing? Yeah, You're fucking right. They do do that all the time. I'm right. like, she's like, yeah, they're always associated with Diablo and fire. And I was like, damn, that's crazy. I didn't even think about that. Right. But it's a thing because we all have our preconceived notions about what category people fit in. I'll give you another example. I used to play. I'm, I still play. But in high school, I was one of the best players in my state in basketball. Like, in, it's North Carolina. Like, if you know anything about North Carolina, there's UNC and Duke there. Seth Curry. Steph Curry's from there. and Michael Jordan's from there. Vince Carter's from there. You can go down the list. Um, So this is, like, what we do. If I would go to a gym or a court where nobody knew who I was, I would almost get picked up last. Or I would have to wait until I, like, called Hmm. next and then pick my team. Because people just assumed that I wasn't good. Because they couldn't pinpoint what my experiences were as a black person. So I would have to go on the court, bust their ass over and over again. And they'd be like, oh, shit, he's actually good. Now, I also played soccer, and I was really good at that, too. I would always get picked first. Every single time. Huh. huh. And I'm like, what the fu- How do y'all even know I'm good? No, no, I've never <laughs> even seen half y'all people before. They just assumed that I was good. Because they were thinking either, one, if you're black and you play soccer, you're probably exceptionally good at it, or else you wouldn't be playing it. But two... There, so because I'm Barbadian, uh, and I have unique features because Barbadians are, are unique because so in the West Indies it's mostly Indians, Hindu of Hindu faith. Now hmm. Barbados is different because it's people who migrated from Bangladesh to escape persecution from Hindus, and so they're the only island in the West Indies that is primarily most they're they're descendant of Muslim Bengalis. And then they came to the States, but when they came, like most of the West Indians, they went to Jamaica, Queens and New York, but couldn't tell people, or at least not make a big deal out of being from Barbados, because people would associate that with being from Bangladesh and not being Hindu, and they didn't want to be persecuted. So they overtly assimilated to the point where most people from Barbados have no association with the culture whatsoever. But we all have very unique features. Like our eyelashes are different. A lot of us have like freckles. We're a little bit more reddish brown instead of like being brown, like a traditional brown, like a mixed person would be. Um, like our eye structure is different. It's just a lot of our hair texture is even different. Right. Almost every black superstar from the '90s and early 2000s was actually Barbadian. Uh, LL Cool J, Megan Good, Cuba Gooding Jr. and his brother Will Smith, DJ Grandmaster Flash, ASAP Rocky, Rihanna. I mean, the list goes on.
0: No kidding.
1: I swear. And it's because people in Hollywood figured out that we have features that are quote unquote soft enough that is acceptable by white pop culture. But we're still black enough to be casted in leading roles in black movies and hip hop music and R&B. Right. And so that is how visceral our reactions are to race and even the subtleties and nuances of what we think a race should look like or shouldn't look like
0: well it's 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 so interesting because like what you're describing is is really almost really individual, and that's true right I mean every person is different, and everybody's got really a different racial background, and there's actually all kinds of subtleties of combinations. it's not like you know you're chinese and you're black and you know you're native american and i'm and i'm white we're all sort of some kind of combination thereof but these subtle mm-hmm. differences then affect our like our experience our in the world mm-hmm. yeah because it's i mean i'll give you another example like so uh
1: brazil everybody considers brazilian women like the most exotically beautiful women on the planet like everybody like it's almost like unanimous consent at this point Part of the reason why is because the Ottoman Empire and the Portuguese Empire used to go at it all the time. And so a lot of Portuguese people have Arabic, uh, have Arabic, um, they're mixed with Arabic. A lot of them. I would say even the majority of them are at this point. They come to Brazil and they mix with the indigenous and black people and the African slaves that were there. But what people don't realize is that we already understand for various reasons. That it is actually considered to be taboo in both western culture and in arab culture for black people to end up with arabs and have kids because of the muslim christian connection because of unfortunately arabs perception of black people how they like to kind of keep everything in their family and their culture in their community and marry within their religion so mm-hmm. we never see it the only time that we see it in massey is in brazil where there's neither a huge christian population or at least no stigma against a Christian population uh, dating an Arab because they have no idea what the fuck that's about. They're just like, Oh, I was here. And these are the people that were available to date. And so we, we had, we, we had kids like this. Is, they don't think about it. They just did it. And so this is like the only time that we see a country have a massive population of Arabs and black people and Arabs and indigenous people mixing. So they have curly hair, maybe my skin complexion or lighter, but then they'll have green eyes. Which doesn't happen anywhere else in the world, right? But that's why everybody's so infatuated with them because it's something we never see anywhere else.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, and it is. Uh, I mean, probably part of the root of the problem is like I know. I mean, at least especially the English were just extremely racist, and when they when they colonized, they didn't tend to mix in the way that other even other European cultures would in South America around the world, and you end up with these more more these combinations of different races and these different kinds of expressions of race in different places around the world where um especially the English I think really had the superiority complex and where they yeah. colonized you know they <laughs> I'm like y'all I mean, the same
1: I- people where all of your kings and queens died of the exact same throat cancer like are you kidding me
0: <laughs> and I'm I'm Irish by the way so no love for the English on that one <laughs> Just to let you know. Hey, <laughs> yeah, we call y'all the black
1: people of the UK, bro. That's what we call. Right on.
0: <laughs> right on.
1: <laughs> like, bro, I was like, yo, the Irish went through it. God damn. Yeah.
0: yeah. Although I've been accused of being racist when I bring that up. When I'm like, hey, my people were persecuted too back in the day. I mean, the English tried to eradicate us and all. Oh, it, it's know. a very
1: valid. And it was a version of race. Because like y'all have, especially back then, like, Closer to like, you know, people who, did, when you, at, before there was a lot of mixing, like y'all have very, very unique features yeah. compared to the people on, you know, in England, like in mainland, like, because like basically Ireland, not, you're not an island, are you? Or are y'all an island?
0: Yeah, it's an island. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, but even though it isn't discussed like that, but because of y'all being island, y'all have very, very unique features and unique accent. And my guess is a lot of resources too, that mainland England wanted access to. Oh Yeah. Even though, of course, I wanted to, you know, not give them that. And so there is some similarities there. I think that some people react like that because they feel like it is almost uh, um, a dismissal of the uniqueness of the experience of a black person, depending on what the context is. And sure. so I think that that's where, so it's like when it's brought up more so that the fact that it's brought up, you know what I'm saying? And Because I, I think that more people need to know, what hell, not a lot of people know what the hell the Irish went through. <laughs> not a lot of people know. And it's-, well, they, it's Yeah, they they call it the potato famine. European imperialism and colonialism, that Irish story is a very important story to learn about.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think so, too. And it's again, it kind of goes to the point of at least, you know, we do have a lot more in common than we have these differences. You are listening to this. You are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through Rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKenty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to The Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. I don't want to keep you too long, but I do have one more question that I want to get to while I have you here. And then we can kind of wrap it up whenever, whenever you need to go. But, um, mm-hmm. I, as I, just to kind of finish up with this idea of race and what's going on, because I've always had one big question and I want to see what you think about it. I mean, I guess it was sort of, I guess the, from my understanding the central difference between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X where yes. Martin Luther King was kind of desiring I don't want to say assimilation of African Americans into normal American society but he saw sort of this this cooperative everybody working together where Malcolm X was more like you know African American
1: desegregation integration yeah
0: right but then, how is that? You know, when you compare it to say Malcolm X, who is more like African Americans, we have our own culture, we have our own views, we could, you know, just make create our own communities and, and work out, you know, work our problems through by ourselves, be be basically a separate thing, and not care about what the white community or white culture is doing. And I just sometimes i I think that a lot of these, again, like the virtue signaling liberals that you've talked about, when they're talking about diversity. I I kind of hear them talking about assimilation, right? I mean, somewhere, yeah, somewhere back there, it, yeah. yeah, it's like, <laughs> and, and there's a white to me, there's a white supremacy in that. Like our culture is there's superior. there's still a white supremacy, <laughs> we, right? We want to we want to assimilate you because we're so good. We want to assimilate people of color into our culture, which is clearly superior. I mean, they they don't say it that way, but that's yeah, what why they're talking they about. They accept
1: the Kamalas. They accept the Cory Bookers. They yeah. accept the Obamas. They accept the ones who speak like them, who act like them, who will right. play the game like them. But like somebody like myself, or Ice Cube, or uh, you know maybe Lamar Jackson from the Ravens, who didn't refuse, who refused to take the vaccine, um, and they immediately try to demonize him. Immediately, granted, when you're that famous, sometimes shit don't work because you yeah. make a lot of money for a lot of people, and people all of, all of a sudden forget what they don't like about you. <laughs> but like. Um, you you see that when there are people who don't assimilate that love that we would get like when i was a bernie supporter exclusively the love i got from white leftists was lo- was like i could do no wrong yeah right but the moment that i questioned their white savior it was an issue but i'm like well hold on i, I like i liked bernie because of all these issues and you know i also was against corruption in the establishment so if he's he's behaving in a way that's antithetical the message that I started liking him for and is behaving like the establishment, like logic would tell you that, of course, I'm going to criticize him. That was my perspective. But I had, I didn't really understand people the way I do now, where I'm like, oh, because y'all don't give a shit about these issues, really. It's your, you, this is all like the BLM vaccinated. It's like a, the signs outside of the fucking apartments and on the, uh, 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 excuse me, outside the houses on their lawns. It's virtue signaling for click, for like to build clicks, to build these little these little tribes that you can then turn into a podcast, that you can then turn into a nonprofit organization. That y'all have this understanding of what's acceptable, the acceptable parameters of of discussion to have. Mm. Yeah, you can be anti-establishment until it's time to vote fucking Democrat, because that's what you better do. Because that's where our money comes from. You can it, 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 you see it amongst Republicans. You can be anti-establishment, but you better not speak out against the war on terror. You better not support universal health care. Yeah. that's where we draw the line. that and so they try to set these these limited hangouts or limited parameters of discussion and debate. Uh, and if you delve outside of that, like when I mean, I, I, I'm not a fan, I actually I, I kind of despise Tom Loren, but there was a point where she spoke up uh and said that her boss's stance on abortion laws was completely and totally wrong and they fired her for it because she no you're supposed to be our little blonde girl who says exactly what we tell her to and just be cute and shut up and do what we tell you to do right the moment she stepped outside of that and she and, and she spoke from her identity which we are which no matter how much you sell out there's always that one moment that visceral moment where you can't help but like, like, I can't just, I just can't like, yeah, there's, there's like, there's limits to this shit. And she had that moment. Candace Owens has had that moment when talking about prison reform, right? Even I would say Trump has had that moment uh, when it comes to, uh, like, I, I'm sure he saw a lot and cause he used to hang out with the rap community and the black community and the hip hop community and the black, like he was really big in the black community, like in the nineties, hmm. all the rappers used to talk about hanging out with him. So I'm sure that there were a lot of points, like when it came to the First Step Act, he remembered all those conversations that he had had. He remembered all the things that that his friends, like Mike Tyson and others, had talked about. And he was like, I got to do something if I can. Does he get it right all the time or even most of the time? No, but there's just always that point where if you have any, any piece of a soul left, your identity will come out and the the experiences that you've had or your friends or your family have had uh, start to guide your conversation. And if you step outside of that left, right paradigm or the acceptable parameter of the conversation, you will be ostracized. We have not seen Tom and Loren since and nobody realizes it.
0: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So you feel like uh, if you really take a stand like for a separate African-American culture or for, you know, a, a separate cultural identity, then you you get outside that box and you're not allowed into that, like that accepted parameters of those conversations that you're allowed to have in typical politics today within the left-right paradigm.
1: Yep. Whenever I remember Ice Cube came out and said, uh, guys, I've been doing some research and I realized both parties are full of shit and they've never helped the black community. So I don't <laughs> think that we should vote for anybody until somebody gives us a promise. And so what did they say? They attacked him and said that he was a Trump supporter. Yeah. So it's like, well, yeah. said, no, that's not what I said. I said that neither of the parties. And in fact, I called Joe Biden to see if he would work with me, and they were like, "Nah, we'll talk to you after we win." Right. And they're like, "Oh, so you're a Trump supporter?" He said, "No, that's not what I said." <laughs> but they are trying to push him into one tribe or the other because, and, and which because they, they, if you push him into that one tribe then they're hoping that all the Black people would not listen to anything that he had to say. And they do that, of course, with some populist conservatives, too, that they push you and make you look like a dirty, rotten communist. And that word is warped like a motherfucker, too. That's a different conversation for a different day. Like, they... Cause I'm not. i like I don't believe. I'm like, I'm not a communist. I don't actually like Marx. Marx was actually a racist, and I think that he was actually an asset. But that's a it's a whole different thing.
0: Yeah, right. But, we can talk um, about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a yeah, yeah. He's an asset. So is George Orwell, by the way. So anyway, but the like they'll try to call you a communist because that's a virtue signal to 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 not allow conservatives to hear what you have to say, and and potentially change hearts and minds. The one thing they don't they don't like people who point out their ideological inconsistencies because then you can't then they start to see like hold on well not only are we more alike as working class and poor people than we thought but y'all motherfuckers is a lot more alike than we thought too and you've been pretending this entire time that you weren't but you actually are and the only reason you thought you liked that other group was because a lot of people thought that that group was different than the other group and it turns out that they're not right so they don't want people to figure that part out even though right. at this point, like you, we got Democrat House, in Senate, Democrat executive branch, mostly Democratic governors now. How's that working out for us? Yeah. <laughs> the same way it did when Republican. I mean, I mean, well, Trump had all three branches of government. And then the Democrats use that as an excuse for why they couldn't get anything done. Then they win the House back. Still don't get anything done under the excuse that, oh, well, it's a split government. Well, now you have everything back by hook or by crook. <laughs> you, somehow. Every time conversations get brought up by the Senate, it's always Joe Manchin's fault that shit doesn't get done. But Chuck Schumer's name, who's the fucking Senate majority leader, never gets discussed. He's he's out here tweeting, give out $2,000 now. Just introduce the bill. You can do it. (laughs) Or whenever the moratorium, the the Trump's eviction, and it is Trump's eviction moratorium that he did, because Congress refused to act, when it expired... This, the 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 Supreme Court was like, well, well, no, we're we're overturning the extension because it's this is Congress's job. And then was like, y'all are cruel. And I'm like, no, they're like, no, you can do this right now. If you did this right now, the t- more can extend as long as you want. Ah, oh, but oh, that means Supreme Court. Too bad we can't do anything about oh, it, guys. Yeah. Sorry.
0: Nah, that was all part of the plan, right? I mean, and I even think that this cycle. It's like a four, eight year, it's an eight year cycle, really, where the people get sick of it, vote for one party, they control all three, three branches. And then for some reason, they can't get anything done. And then the people are sick of it. And so that party loses the house two years later, or the Senate, and then it's a split government, and then they can't get anything done. And what they're really doing is, you know, as you know, they're working for the corporations, they're not working for the people there, and they're getting that job done. Aren't they? <laughs> yeah, and I'll say now there is one positive that we
1: can take away from this, which is that they have been able to get away with that for a long time in the past, because we didn't, we weren't in this age of information that we're in now. Uh, they accidentally, I mean, they the pandemic at this point, I feel like you can make the argument that the way it was handled was per, it was purposely mishandled to screw over as many people as possible, so that companies like Blackwater and you know, and the federal government can come in and scoop up all the shit. Uh, like they did in 2008, but even I would say probably ten times that now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A lot
1: of people who were screwed in 2008 never recovered. Um, instead of, of like, the 10 million people that were homeless in 2008, it's going to be 28 million this time. So, um, but they did it. It was mishandled on purpose. But because of that, everybody had nothing to do but sit down and consume all this information and watch them, their neighbors that they thought they didn't like or disagreed with, uh, their their friends, their family, get royally fucked in broad daylight and then you know biden comes in and some people because some people believed in the the left-right paradigm still biden's going to come in and save the day right the only thing things weren't getting done because the republicans were in, right yeah so then what happens now they're like oh this motherfucker is doing worse shit so now they're like oh well shit since i ain't (laughs) have anything to do for the last year and a half but watch y'all motherfuckers play patty cake with the u.s economy i saw all that shit so now you have people like in New York, left, right, conservative, Democrat, whatever. They voted for Trump. They voted for Biden. these. There are tens, there's like a, thousands of people in New York marching against these mandates. Thousands of people. The media is not covering it. Yeah. But that only happens because the, 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 the they're the elite, they're smart. They're only smart when it comes to us having a lack of information to properly counter their narratives or be able to see the inconsistencies. Now that we can see the inconsistencies, they've never had practice in hiding inconsistencies because they've never
0: had to. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've heard you talk about that, like having that consistent worldview. That's what separates critical thinkers from what I, and what I've seen in the last, year and a half, especially, is the how the media uses the left-right paradigm to almost spoon-feed what people think. And if they don't have that discipline to to make sure that they're consistent in their thinking, it's like they just fall for it. They identify as left, and then the news tells them think like this and they go, this is how I think because I'm left wing. And, or if they identify as conservative and Fox news tells them to think like this and it's so powerful, oh. you know, but yeah. I think that's why like we can, yeah, I th- we do actually come from different foundations probably. Like I said, I'm more libertarian. You're more progressive in that way. But just, I think having that consistent worldview is what can bring us together and um, bring us together on yeah. the racial issue too. We can have these political and racial conversations and actually like, Okay, you know, let's figure out how to maintain consistency here. Let's apply some critical thinking and we'll figure it out, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's what I like if I'm debating somebody, a lot of people when they debate me, and, and this is just like a natural. they' they're debating like topics. they're debating an issue. I'm debating consistency or lack thereof, and that's it. That's why I never lose yeah. because I'm my consistency is like there's like literally something in my brain. That I cannot be paying attention to what the person on the debate screen is saying like 30 minutes in, because a lot of times they've already kind of low key conceded that their defeat and they just start rambling the same shit over and over again. But when I hear something that directly contradicts something they had just said earlier in the conversation, there is like a damn a red alarm that goes yeah. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's right. not what you just said earlier. Because if this is true and this is true, which is what you said, correct? Yes, what I thought. Then this is true, which means this has to be true. And usually, if you see any of my debates, by the time I get to, and if you said this, then they fucking, they snap and try to cut me off because they know if the conclusion that I'm getting to is 100% correct, and I only, the only thing I did to prove it was just use what they said earlier. Like, that's it. Yeah. And people, instead of, and so that's how you know when somebody's debating to be right versus trying to figure out what's right. And I'm, right. Trying, I'm not debating to be right. I'm debating to figure out the correct answer. Yeah, and the only way totally. we can figure that out is through consistency. And if we can't even agree on agree on consistency uh, or a consistent application of principles in facts, then like, how the fuck can we agree on how to solve problems?
0: Yeah, exactly. We can't even agree on yeah. what the problems are. Yeah, that I think that discipline is so important. It's so you know, it's just refreshing to hear you uh, talk about it like that, because you know, again, the last year and a half. And with the left-right paradigm and all of these other things, I'm seeing uh, I'm seeing a lot of psychological control at work. That's really tapping mm-hmm. into people's emotions, right? Or their identity mm-hmm. in the left-right paradigm, or whatever it is, or their race, right? And and the system, mm-hmm. you know, the the colonizers, or ha- however you want to describe it, the people that have the money to pay for all of this propaganda that we get inundated with all the time. They know exactly how to target those emotional parts of ourselves, those that psychological part. That if you don't have consistency, if you don't have that discipline to remain consistent, then you're going to get sucked into it. All of a sudden, you're going to be so far yeah. out in left field and they're going to be pulling your chain all day long. And, and I, that's what's so happening right good, now. That's what's going on right but now. The,
1: the good thing is, though, which they don't account for because they the only think in short-sighted terms is that like anyone who is a human and has lived more than 20 years of their lives, no, like, bro, people get exhausted of being like, like, emotionally reacting all the time. They just, right. whether it's in relationships, friendships, life, you are like, you just fucking get exhausted. You're like, bro, this is tiring. Okay, <laughs> like, that's when you, you kind of like get over. You go back to your girlfriend or boyfriend, and like, uh, I was tripping. You, know, you know what? No, no, I've taken time. I'm too fucking. T- I'm, t- I'm too tired of being mad. You need to fix the shit. Like, what do we gotta do to do that? That's what we need to figure out. And that's kind of like now people are getting past the emotions of like, oh, everybody's dying. Everybody, it's like, bro. People can't be paranoid forever. They just don't have, we don't have the capacity to, bro. We yeah. have the ADHD, my generation, we're the ADHD generation. Right. We can't even remember what the fuck we was mad about yesterday. And like, so now as people just get exhausted of being upset all the time. They get exhausted of being fearful all the time. If that moment where they finally, like, I'm oh, kind of tired. Is there any like weight out of this? That moment, that brief moment where they had to think and be like, Well, what's next? and they start looking for what's next. If they hear the right thing from the right person at the right time, that's when they wake up and they're a little bit more open and to listen. And yeah. as far as the consistent application of, um, of like principles and, 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 and how important it is, uh, and I, this will be the last thing I talk about. I do gotta go, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good story. So, I've had a theory about antifa and proud boys being of the same ilk Hmm. if you will they're from the same entity and i didn't talk about it when i first had the uh, the theory in 2018 2017 2018 because that shit seems so far fetched for for the average person because of just how emotional we were but i'm like well these people both came out of nowhere like that's really convenient yeah Why right they, like you know what i'm saying like like even proud boys came out of nowhere and then so later on i started doing a little bit more research into the founder of the proud boys which is gavin mcginnis gavin mcginnis actually was a founder or co-founder of vice news which was primarily funded by the canadian government and gavin mcginnis's dad was one of the promote one of the the most prominent defense contractors in the canadian government no shit so he with all of his liberal clout And the clout that he got from Vice News decides to, I want to start the Proud Boys and talk about punching fucking people I disagree with. Yeah. Then if Proud Boys hits hits its prominence, right? Okay. Then he's like, well, not as high, uh, you know, high, high, high awareness. I'm just going to step away now. And then this guy, Tario, takes over. A guy, Cuban guy, white Cuban from South Florida, Gusano. Right now, on the other side of that fence, like I told you, I'm familiar with the real Antifa. I also know that the CIA tends to repackage shit because they're unoriginal and uninventive as fuck. They always use the same shit. Yeah. They just, they always do it. Like with the Gucci, I, know, I don't know if you've been with the Gucci for shit, like from the from the Russiagate thing where like, yeah, okay, yeah. Gucci for 2.0. So they took a real hacker's name, Gucci right. for, and just Gucci for 2.0 because we don't know what the fuck to call shit. We don't know <laughs> the hacking community well enough to come up with something original. So, that's the same idea for Antifa. I also, know they didn't believe in mass. They, they believed in movement accountability. This gr- group of Antifa did not. I also saw the way that the mainstream media, because I know how the mainstream media demonized people, they didn't demonize Antifa. They actually demonized BLM, who Antifa was supposedly there to support. They said that, oh, we think Russians infiltrated the local BLM movements mm. when they were reporting on the protests. But, but Antifa's good, though. And then... I remember that fateful moment during the debates where Biden was like, first of all, Antifa isn't an organization. It's an idea. It's a movement. I was like, well, that seals it. And I text my friend Jack. And I said, hey, bro, real quick, Antifa and Proud Boys are the same thing. And he was like, what? And so I right. told him about Gavin McGinnis. And I'm like, yeah. I said, you know how they say Tario is like in, he worked in the securities industry in South Florida? He's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, he's a Fed. He's like, well, how do you know that? I'm like, because I'm from the hood. I know a fucking fad when I see one. <laughs> so I say, once all this stops, all of a sudden, there's not gonna be any antifa, there's not gonna be any proud boys, both are gonna be used to push, push some type of domestic terrorism agenda, and we're gonna be fucked, basically. Yeah. So
0: I mean that goes back. Mario to-
1: gets arrested two days before the January 6th incident hmm. with two high-powered magazines. His lawyer argues for it. So what that means is, one, they knew January six was coming and pretend like they didn't, right? There's that. But then, two, his lawyers argued in court that he was a fucking federal informant and that they should cut him some slack, be- uh, FBI specifically informant, right. that they should cut him some slack. Now, meanwhile, Joe Biden gets elected, and on inauguration day, unlike with Donald Trump, Antifa is nowhere to be found and no one is hearing from them, and all of a sudden the riots disappear.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is exactly about the, again, the weaponization of racism that we've been talking about, that they just can create these organizations to fight each other, create this division. And all the while, you know, we're We're not working together.
1: Yeah, Yeah. But like, but I would have never, and the only reason I was basically the only one to have been able to figure that out is because at least in my circle, uh, even though there are obviously a lot more independent minded and principally consistent than most, Like I'm the only one where it's damn near a a disorder at this point, where it's like there is no way that I can see all of these things be 100% true all the time, see it happen in this circumstance, and pretend like it's not there because emotionally I'm pulled one way or the other right like i can't be like that yeah. because my brand is dependent on me leaning one way or the other or like all these other outside circumstances like that influence people or blind people to some degree on one or the other or towards one or the other i couldn't do it i'm like bro it's, this is uh, this is this is what it is he was like duh, like that's are you sure i'm like bro yeah i'm i'm almost 100% positive <laughs> and, and it all of it down to tario literally being a fucking fbi operative like all of it was true yeah but i can only see it because applying appla- applying consistent principles when you do that you can't not see shit like that right you just can't so that's why it's important
0: yeah it becomes apparent the level of manipulation it, uh, most people really can't believe it but when you look into it it's just you know overwhelming mountains of evidence start to pile up where it's like hey you know these intelligence agencies really do have the power to create these kind of movements um yeah, uh, the 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 number of uh uh domestic terrorists or the muslim terrorist attacks that happened there was the story out of mother jones this was years ago now but that the fbi had basically set them all up to to scare people into thinking that there was this huge terrorist problem in the united states and that al-qaeda was around every corner you know or the or the ser-
1: so when people try to warn so this is one of the things I learned about. Like, so I understand from my studies with Central and South America that the, we don't allow actual refugees into our country. Like, like not actual political refugees. To be frank, it's usually the the white ones who are working on behalf of the puppet government that we were uplifting. Right. Like that's why all the Cubans in the, in the U.S. are like white, but all the Cubans in Cuba are are, are um, mestizo or black. Right. Basically, seventy sure. percent of them. So, like it is the same thing with Venezuela, people don't even know that Black Venezuelans exist, but there's a shitload of them and a lot of indigenous ones too. Um, same thing with Bolivia, et cetera, et cetera. So, I'm thinking to myself, whenever they were doing that push in 2014 for all of the Syrian refugees to be allowed into the States, and it was welcoming welcoming them all with open arms and really weren't even vetting them all that well. And I'm thinking, like, that's fucking weird. Since when do we allow actual refugees to come into our country? So then, Fast forward a couple few years later. Remember that terrorist attack that happened that turned out to be a Syrian refugee that was let in during the Obama era? Right. Because We don't let in actual refugees. We let in, you know, some, some women and children get in, which is good, whatever. But right. like the men who come here, generally speaking, they're probably going to be on the side of the empire. You know, it's not because they're Muslim. It's not because they're Arabic. It's not because they're Syrian. But it's because they're on the side of the empire. In whatever form that may look like at the time that may be convenient to the empire itself. And that's what people need to start getting. Like, you, once again, I could have been emotional by like, that's fucking Islamophobic. Da-da-da-da. It's like, no, I can't say this when it comes to Central and South America. And then the moment that somebody does out the word Muslim, all of a sudden my brain breaks. Right. It's like, fuck that. What is the situation and circumstance? Is this the same time, same thing they've always done? Is there a reason, reasonably so, that this circumstance would be different? And if it is different, why is CNN talking about it like they talked about everything else? It's like you can't ignore it, bro. And it turned out that's exactly what it is. So,
0: well, right on, nico I better let you go. I think we could talk for uh, for hours if we get on <laughs> any other any more topics. We'll just keep on going. But I know uh, you got places to go, people to see this afternoon. Yeah, so,
1: yeah, yeah. I, hey, man, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, man, man. I well, hope I likewise. hope it helped. I hope it helped.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it was good. I got I got what I wanted out of it. And uh, hopefully maybe we'll get a chance to, to do it again sometime because uh, I, I did. I I did like delving into your stuff and I found that we have so much in common. I've been doing a lot of work, you know, trying to understand how to kind of get the, the libertarians, because, you know, even once you kind of wake up, I think, to the the workings, the, the machinations of the empire, we cling to the left right paradigm so much because we identify one way or the other and i and i keep trying to figure out how to get you know whatever you know libertarian minded people connected with progressive minded people to realize we all got to work together whatever our differences are if we're going to if we're going to mm-hmm. actually be able to mount some kind of defense against you know this what's been going on for so long col- colonization no. really but you know yeah, how do was, we how do we figure out how to question. message that the
1: first question that you have to ask people is, Why do we have the differences? Where do they come from? Yeah. Then, when you ask that question, then you start doing some genuine, because there's going to be a surface level response, right? From what they think they know from the last 10, 15 years. Then there's going to be the next level response that you can really only get through uh, to through friendship and conversations, because uh, there has to be a trust established instead of you uh, totally. assuming that a person's trying to fulfill a political agenda or get you to come over to their side. And then there's that third level. Where you do address, you know, maybe generational trauma, um, history, in-depth history, things like that, uh, that could be affecting their decision, even inadvertently. They don't know about it. Um, And and once again, but the conversation has to start and it has to start with, why are we like this? Not like what we should do next. Because like, yeah, if you don't identify the correct problem, then how can you craft a, a solution to that problem? Yeah. So
0: right on, man. Well, you want to let people know uh, where should where should I point them to to uh, find out more of your stuff, where are you send them people so you these can, days?
1: You can find me on YouTube, I guess, at some point again. I'm suspended right now for the next week. But you can find me on <laughs> YouTube at MCSC Network with Nico House, N-I-K-O-H-O-U-S-C. You can also find me on Rockfin, dot ncom slash Nico. On Twitter, at Nico, N-I-K-O-C-S, F as in Frank and B as in boy. Um, and I'm on Instagram as well at Jimmy Hin H E N Drip B R I P.
0: All right, sounds good, man. Thanks for coming on. I'll uh, I'll just give a second to say that you have been listening to the shift. I'm your host Doug McKenty, and you can I'm actually uh, still pointing people to my Facebook page. My personal page has the most followers right now, so if you kind of want to get involved, then just look up Doug McKenty on Facebook. I'm at D McKenty on Twitter. Those two, and I'm also on Rockfin. If you look up uh, at the shift now or Doug McKenty, I'll come up on Rockfin, um, pointing people there. That seems to be actually a great venue for all of us these days. So.
1: Love rock, man. Love us. Yeah, (laughs) right
0: on. And so uh, people can find me there. And uh, of course, you can go to my website, www.theshiftnow.com and uh, sign up for the newsletter and get uh, all the information from there. That's actually the best way to go. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks, Nico, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Great conversation, man.
1: Thank you, man. You too, bro. Take it easy.
0: Yeah, you too. Well, all right. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was my conversation with Nico House. Um, that actually went better than I thought it was going to, right? <laughs> I was a little bit nervous about getting in touch with him. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time with an African-American about racism so that we could really kind of try to, to cross that gap. Uh, I'm someone that was raised in white America. I did grow up in Houston. Uh, I went to a high school that was you you know, fairly uh, representative of a a multiplicity of cultures. There were African Americans, there were Hispanics at my high school. But, you know, I'll admit, I mostly hung out with my white friends, people that were like me. I I went to a college that was predominantly white. And now I live in a community that is uh, probably 99% white. Uh, I'm about as white as it gets. And so, when I started hearing about white privilege, and I started hearing about some of these other terms, systemic racism, uh, critical race theory, these things. I, at first, I was a little bit skeptical uh, just because I felt like there are a lot of, of poor white people too. You know, Why do we have to separate things out of race? There are a lot of white people that are oppressed by the system. Uh, I'm not saying that African-Americans and other racial groups aren't also oppressed by the system, but it doesn't seem to me that it has to be something that's so divisive. Um, But I did, you know, as I heard more and more about it, uh, I realized that as a white person from a white background, I couldn't speak for an African-American. I mean, I didn't know what their experience was like, and I thought what a great idea it would be to uh, have an African-American on the podcast that was uh, in a position to really have an honest conversation about racial differences and how we feel about living in the United States. Uh, me from the white person's perspective and, and him from uh, an African-American perspective. And so when I discovered Nico, I thought, you know, maybe this is the guy. And I sent him the email and then I was like, it was so classic because I, I, I thought, you know, is this guy going to think I'm just crazy? Uh, Was it even appropriate to kind of say, you know, I want to have an uncomfortable conversation. I just want to lay it out on the table and see how you feel about things, you know? Uh, But he got back to me. He said he was really uh, excited about having the conversation. Uh, And then as we started talking, I mean, he actually said, you know, right, he appreciated uh, that I wanted to talk to an African American about their experience and that he had seen so many people uh, on TV over the last couple of years, you know, white people talking about what it's like to be a person of color and what white people should do. Uh, Without inviting people of color to the table to have the conversation. And I think he appreciated the opportunity to really have that discussion. Uh, And then the more that I looked into him, you know, it was, uh, I I realized, well, this guy's always kind of identified as as left leaning. I'm usually more of a libertarian, although I do consider myself a left libertarian. Uh, Are we going to get into this kind of left right paradigm conflict? Um, And not only on the racial issue, Was it phenomenal how much we agreed? But then even when we as we kind of talked a little bit more about politics, uh, it was just like I was like, I agree with everything that you say. I mean, we were really just uh, hanging out, shooting the shit having a mature conversation about how we feel about race and politics in the united states and i thought we got along uh really well i was really impressed with um i did not know before this conversation that he had a history in debate and when he started talking about how you know people whether you agree with them or not they at least have to have an argument from an internally consistent perspective uh, an integrated perspective and that's something that i realized when i was studying philosophy uh, that it is important to at least have a worldview that's integrated and consistent. And if you're not coming from that place, then eventually you're just going to be a hypocrite. And so many people uh, aren't willing to test their belief system to that place. And uh, the fact that Nico has done that and has done that work for himself, it just made for a great conversation. You know, he really uh, was confident in his point of view, uh, but he wasn't judgmental about mine. Um, we were able to have an open and honest conversation about a variety of things. And when it came to the race issue, I think what was most impressive to me, or maybe even surprising, was how much we completely agreed. I mean, I thought there was going to be some kind of like disagreement uh, uh, from, from our perspectives. But uh, I think we just have respect enough for each other's lived experience that it w- we were curious to hear each other's points of view. And then it was uh, amazing to find out how similar they were. I have done interviews in the past about redlining. Uh, and when I was looking in doing research for this interview, I discovered that Nico also understands that, you know, systemic racism, a lot of the issues that are in the African-American community economically stem from the redlining that was done in the 40s and 50s uh, by the Federal Housing Authority. Uh, so we weren't like getting into arguments about what happened in slavery times or, you know, what the founding fathers thought or any of that because he, like myself, realized that the, the general ra- generational wealth that most white people have now, uh, they have because their parents bought houses in 1950 or their grandparents bought houses in 1950 that are now worth a million plus dollars. And African-Americans just weren't. Uh, invited to that party, uh, and so we were able to have a conversation about that. You know, their uh, their communities were segregated and ghettoized, while uh, the white communities were built up by these government systems, and that's clearly uh, clearly causing uh, a lot of the economic disparities to this day. Um, and it's not so much what's happening now. I mean, that's the thing about it. He also, uh, when we brought up just the discussion about racism, it's not like I wasn't trying to say that racism didn't exist. Uh, And he had his own personal experiences that he shared with us in the conversation, right, about what's happened to him and the racism that he's dealt with. But he was willing to also kind of break it down. And Understand that everybody is an individual and everybody has a different relationship with race uh, and uh, even amongst people of color there are different segments of people that are racist against other segments of, of, uh, of that community as well. So uh, it's not just a black and white thing and he perceived as I do uh, that racism has really been weaponized to a great extent by the upper class. Uh, especially during the Trump era, to try to put down a lot of the populism that I think Nico—I don't want to put words in his mouth—but seems like uh, since the Bernie Sanders uh, primary scandal, uh, he's becoming more and more open-minded, and that was another thing that I really, uh, I really, it really resonated with me because i'm seeing i've seen a lot of progressives after the bernie sanders primary they really woke up to the corruption that's endemic in the political process and they and they and they started to look at some of the the quote unquote conspiracy theory stuff or the more populist material that's now being branded as white supremacist or white nationalist by the mainstream media and saying to themselves like you know actually some of this seems to make sense and so we're incorporating what's really happening is that people from the left are leaving the left-right paradigm. People from the right are leaving the left-right paradigm, and we're starting to find this middle ground. And and I I really enjoyed that part of the conversation with Nico, where, I mean, it was actually surprising to me again that uh, he didn't say anything that I disagreed with. I mean, he kind of self-identifies as progressive. I kind of self-identify as libertarian. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we were right there. When it came to what's going on racially in the country, uh, when it came to the the deep, deep corruption that we're seeing in the government corporate system, uh, you know, I mean, more power to us, right? There was no reason, no conflict, no. <laughs> uh, so, so much of this is being weaponized. It's being fabricated, I think, and I think Nico would agree uh, to prevent people of color, communities of color, uh, working and unifying with uh white communities across the country to fight the elitist system uh you know a unified populist uprising against the upper class so that's uh it seems like there should be no reason for this not to happen frankly but uh but the mainstream media would have you think that all the white populists are just crazy white nationalist conspiracy theorists far right-wing nut jobs right um Another thing that I wanted to bring up with him, and I was really happy that he also just completely agreed with me about, which was this notion that so many establishment progressives, so many people on the left are constantly talking about diversity, 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 and we need to incorporate people of color into uh, these educational institutions, into these corporate institutions, so that we have a quote-unquote more diverse uh, culture, right? Not just this this white supremacist culture where it's only white males that dominate the top of the hierarchy, which I've always seen as a form of assimilation. Like if you really have respect for for cultures of color that are different from the white culture, then maybe you'd be looking at learning from these other cultures and then incorporating those ideas into your own community rather than you know, there to me, there's this inherent white supremacy in so much of the racial conversation that's happened by the very people who pretend to be anti-racist. Because their ultimate goal, they're just assuming that the white corporate culture that has colonized the planet is clearly superior, and the assumption is so deep inside of themselves that they see anti-racism as being uh, as being incorporating and assimilating people of color into this incredible white culture. Here's our white science, and our white medical system, and our white education system, and our white corporate system, and you guys get your piece of the pie too, and isn't that great? Uh, But it's not great. You know, ask a Native American who's seen their culture be wiped out, or these African Americans who their history goes back to Africa. Their traditional African culture's going back for for thousands and thousands of years, that could be tapped into and learned from by uh, people of European descent, uh, and I'm not seeing any of these uh, these quote unquote progressives or left wing people who are pushing for quote unquote racial equality uh, learning about the history and and the the cultures and the traditions and the sciences uh, that grew from those parts of the world. Uh, they just seem to have this assumption that uh, assimilating people of color into the white man's path uh, is clearly for their benefit. Uh, and it's a supremacist view. I thought it was going to be controversial. I brought it up with Nico, and he was like, no way, man, right there with me. Uh, and so I, I don't even know, <laughs> you know, I don't even know what to say. This, this conversation went way better, uh, probably, than I even expected it to. Uh, I really got along with Nico. I really thought that we... Uh, covered a lot of the points uh, about what's going on with the whole racial thing what's been going on over the last couple of years uh I think he saw through a lot of the the anti-Trump anti-populist rhetoric that was going on that was that was weaponizing uh, racism and even weaponizing his own community against uh, a unifying uprising against the political class uh so We couldn't have agreed with each other anymore. Um, Nico is on his way out now to uh, do a show for RT. He's moving on up to cable. So I'm really happy about that. And I was really happy that he had this this conversation with me before he got super busy. I think that's going to be starting to air here uh, in a couple of months. So I urge all of my listeners to check that out. Uh, And remember, you can go to www.rockfin.com backslash Nico. I think that's the best place to check out his stuff. Um, Rockfin's been a great great platform, a free speech platform for a lot of us. Uh, So if you haven't been there, go to rockfin.com and check it out. Uh, You can also find him on Twitter at NicoSFB, or on YouTube at uh, Nico House and the MCSC Network. So you can find him there. Uh, Yeah, and I urge you to keep track of this guy. I really uh, appreciated the conversation that we had, uh, and I hope that we can have another one on into the future uh, if he can find time from his new show on RT. So anyway, thanks everybody for listening. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. You have been listening to The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. You can find all of my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. If you're not a subscriber, please think about subscribing for the full feature-length episodes of the show. Uh, if you just want to donate, there's a PayPal Uh, There's a PayPal link on the website and that link will be just below uh, here in the show notes too. So uh, if you want to support the show, you can do it there. I'd really appreciate it. You keep the shift going. Uh, and also think about uh, signing up for the newsletter uh, and checking out a lot of free content. Got a lot of extra shows, uh, the Psychology of Lockdown series, the facts and the fiction, some uh, some older stuff, roundtable discussions, uh, and my old show on public radio uh, up there. Hundreds of hours of free content, so you can check it out, www.theshiftnow.com. All right. Thanks again, everybody. Uh, My next conversation is going to be with Sammy Richards, who has just started uh, a new blog called Shifting Timeline, shiftingtimeline.com. Uh, and we are going to be talking about uh, the two different kinds of consciousness that seems to be happening uh, on the planet today um, in terms of just that, you know, it seems like people are just have these totally different realities. There's the quote-unquote conspiracy theorists, uh, and then there's those that follow the, the corporate media and the corporate system. Uh, and this, this particular bifurcation is just seems to be getting wider and wider, so we'll go in deep on that. All right, thanks everybody. Hope to see you again for that conversation and thanks a lot for listening to this one. You guys have a great day.